Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for the chance we have to be in this place. Thank you for your grace that has been showered on us and shown abundantly to us, ultimately in Christ. We thank you that it's by your spirit and by your kindness that you lead us to repentance and to life. And so I pray today that as we open your word, we would not find a weight that crushes us, but instead find weight lifted as we are given freedom to live and to breathe and experience life to its fullness through you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen, amen. Well, as I've been watching this past week the debate on whether it's appropriate to start listening to Christmas music yet, um, <laughs> um, which I think that's funny, like you don't have to mandate whether somebody else enjoys something, um, but, but we find that need, um, and it kind of fits with Christmas and what I was shown about Christmas growing up. I was thinking about this this past week and the difference between Christmas and birthdays, because birthdays, you are given gifts often by people that know you and love you, and, and you don't do anything to earn your birthday gift. It's, it's you know, there's, there's never, never like an obligation to live a certain way in order to have a birthday. It's like, congratulations, you exist You've made it one more revolution around the sun, and so there's kindness shown to you in gift-giving often. Christmas, as a kid, does not feel that way, because we all grew up with the song, and we, we would sing about Santa Claus, right? That he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good for... All right, some of you grew up with that song. Now, my understanding is our kids, uh, you know, we haven't done this with our kids, and this is fine if it's, if it's your thing, but it's only gotten worse with Elf on a Shelf, where now there's an elf actually living in your home that watches you. Um, and so like, there's this idea that Christmas, what do bad kids get in their stocking? A lump of coal. That is some moralistic craziness that we've got. Let's celebrate the ultimate gift that God has given us in showing grace by taking on flesh as an infant born in Bethlehem and the grace of God shown to us. And let's celebrate that by threatening children that they'll get coal in their stocking instead of candy. And so it, it's different than a birthday. And this might be, though, a little bit of a picture for us of grace and law that and that we have, we have been given grace in Christ, but there's also law that we see in Scripture. So we're going to look at the interplay today of those concepts of grace and law. Last week we saw the, we've been in a series through Exodus, and last week we looked at the covenant, the promise that God made to the people of Israel, that they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and, they, and so they entered into a covenant agreement together that models covenants and promises made between rulers and, their, and people in the ancient Near East. And so in this covenant, though, part of that covenant agreement was the law. And we talked about it briefly last week, but I made the promise that we would come back to it this week, and so here we are. Um, and, and so today we're going to look at the interplay between grace and law, because God saved Israel by his grace. He said very clearly at the beginning of the institution of the covenant, you've seen how I brought you out of Egypt, how he saved them from bondage and slavery to the Egyptians and set you free, and now this is what it looks like to live as my people. And so the, the big idea today that we'll see as we walk through this text is that God's grace frees us to live and to love. So we're going to read in Exodus chapter 20 and a bit in Exodus 24. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me there. I'll tell you when we, we go over to the other section. It'll also be on the screens behind me. And so God was, this was in the midst of God speaking to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. And Moses went down to the people and he told them this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning, and the sound of trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now it continues at the end of chapter 24, beginning in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. And then Moses went up onto the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. And so this is the institution of the law. Now, we, the section that I passed over to that we didn't read in full for the sake of time from chapters 20 through 23, is, it gives the initial aspects of the law that God called his people to, the Israelites to. And then, as we saw last week, they went up onto the mountain, the elders of the people, and Aaron and Hur and Joshua and Moses and, the, and 70 elders, and they beheld God and they ate and drank. So they had a meal in God's presence. And then Moses continued up the mountain where he stayed for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the law of God. And so within this, let's begin today. We're going to begin by looking at the law itself. What do we understand about the law? And then we're going to move to understand what the law accomplishes before we look at the reality of God's grace. So that's where we're headed today. First, the law. What do we see about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the law given to the Israelites under Moses? Well, first, we need to understand that there are three major aspects to the law, that there are civil, ceremonial, and moral aspects of the law in the the Old Testament. And we see all three of those aspects in these chapters of Exodus 20 to 24. And so it begins with a moral calling that we know as the Ten Commandments, or others call the Decalogue. So we'll dig into that in just a minute. There's also then, um, there are civil laws, that in the civil laws are matters of justice and how the nation of Israel was to be governed. And so as you read through these chapters, which are begun here and then extended later on, extended in in Leviticus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, in these other books within the Torah, these are matters of justice governing the nation of Israel. And so questions about, about what do you do if? 
And so some of them get to the point where the obscurity of what happened undoubtedly was built off of the cases that Moses was judging with these people already. And so like, what do you do if somebody's ox falls into a pit that you've dug? That's one most of us probably won't encounter in our lives. I'm not, I don't dig many pits, and I'm not around many oxen that would fall into a pit that I've dug. But there's other things, too, like what happens if somebody is sexually abused or raped? What happens? How do you treat immigrants and servants and even regulations limiting the treatment of slaves in Israel and the care for the poor and what justice looks like in the courts? What happens if a man steals an ox? Or what, what happens, it, it also governs things like matters of lending and interest and how to handle when you, give some, when you let somebody borrow money. And so there's civil laws that the nation of Israel is to be governed under. And there's another category of ceremonial laws. And this is what God's people were called to do in order to be clean enough to enter into worship. And so ceremonial laws have to do with the pursuit of holiness. It it, it institutes the sacrificial system. There were rules about the Gentiles entering the the tabernacle or temple courts. There's rules about circumcision being required for men and dietary restrictions on what you may eat or may not eat. And so kosher food law in order to be ceremonially clean. There's rules about handling dead bodies or being in proximity to dead bodies and skin conditions and leprosy and menstrual cycles. And it governs all of these things, but all of these fit underneath the category, not of civil, this isn't the nation governing itself in issues of justice, but ceremonial laws on cleanliness and purity coming into God's presence. And so civil law, ceremonial law, and do you remember the third category that I named? Moral law. So that's the third category of Old Testament laws in this covenant are moral laws. That's what God's people are called to do and how they're called to live as his representatives, as a kingdom of priests in the world that he created. And so the idea that we have here is that the result of holiness is that their lives will look a certain way, that they'll be set apart in the way that they live. Now, these categories are important for us. Let me explain why they're important. Because there's this, I mean, culturally right now, the civil laws often get applied by well-meaning Christians when we get into political discussions. And so we're selective about those to try to back up party lines that we support. We have to understand that the civil laws to govern the nation of Israel may show us some principles for good governance, but that we can't apply those one-to-one to a secular nation state of the United States of America here and now. The ceremonial laws are ones that are, I, I hear most often used as gotchas by non-Christians. And so this is the argument that I hear often of things like, you know, how can you speak about sexuality and sexual norms when you eat shrimp and wear a polyblend sweater? I don't know if this po- sweater is a polyblend that I have on. <laughs> I didn't really look at it today. But, but it gets held up of you wear mixed clothing. And so there are ceremonial laws that are held over the heads of people trying to make moral statements um, and saying you don't fulfill the fullness of the old covenant, so therefore you can never cite anything in it. And I don't think that's helpful or, or true if we actually understand what Christ did and how we understand the law. So civil laws and punishments were systems for Israel as a nation. Those do not extend to us. The ceremonial laws of cleanness have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Nothing could be clearer in the New Testament. And we'll look at that as we go today. That, that what we, and this is the entire book of Hebrews shows us Jesus is greater than Moses and greater than Joshua because he gives us a rest that they were never able to give. Jesus is greater than the priesthood and the sacrificial system because the priests had to give sacrifices daily of bulls and goats, but the blood of bulls and goats could never remove the sinful of our hearts, and Christ came as the ultimate sacrifice once and for all to free us from bondage to sin so that we can live. And so in him, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled, and he offers us his righteousness and his holiness because we are covered by his blood as our sacrificial lamb. And so the ceremonial law is fulfilled by Jesus, and if you're a Christian, then that means that you have been freed from the ceremonial law because you've been given that that holiness in Christ. But the moral laws, that category of Old Testament law, that hasn't gone anywhere. And so there is nothing in the New Testament that refutes the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments that I just read this morning. Those things are still things that God calls us to. 
And so the Ten Commandments, in, in, to start off chapter 20, these are the first things that God says. He says, have no other gods before me. Remember, we saw last week, this covenant was like a marriage relationship. That's what it's looked at. And the prophets even say that, that, that this was a marriage covenant between God and the Israelites. And, and so with this marriage covenant, he's saying, you can't cheat on me with other false idols. No other gods. This is an exclusive relationship. Then the second command, in case you missed the first one, you shall have no other gods before me, is, by the way, don't make any images of other gods either. And, and so the Israelites were told here, he says, I'm a jealous God. And, and those who turn away from me, those who hate me, that will, be, that will extend to the children of the third and fourth generation. But, but my steadfast love, my hesed love, my never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love is extended to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. And so God is saying to them that there's something about loving him first. And the third commandment, don't take God's name in vain. He's saying, don't speak this and talk about me in an empty, self-serving way. And so we're not to use God's name lightly. He, remember how important it is that the book of Exodus is where God reveals himself by his covenant name. And whenever we see Lord in all caps in our Bibles, that's a, that's a transliteration of, of, of meaning. It, it signals back to God's actual covenant name that he revealed to Moses. And he said to Moses, I've revealed myself to you by my name, Yahweh. But I didn't reveal myself by that name to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the other patriarchs. It was to Moses first. And then God said, now you go and tell the people of Israel that Yahweh has sent you, the great I am, the one who is fully self-sufficient the God who created all things has sent you, and this is my name. He said to Moses, go, and I'm going to give you signs to Pharaoh. Why? So that they will know that I am Yahweh, that they will know my name, that his name would be made great. And so God says to them, you've been given this name, Yahweh, your God's name, and so don't speak about that in an empty way. Don't be flippant with the covenant name of the creator of the universe. And that's extended to us. Don't be flippant and casual when we talk about the Almighty God. He says to them, fourth, remember the Sabbath. He says, set apart a whole day that you don't do other work. Now, we're not bound to that as Saturday Sabbatarians strictly because Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that's one he spoke about directly. But my goodness, how often do you actually set apart Sundays to shift your focus off of yourself and the work that you normally do and the things that you normally do in order to rekindle a focus and a love for who God is? That's the image of Sabbath. I think when we think about Sabbath, we often think about self-indulgence, like, gosh, I really just need a day off to go and get some me time. And we lose the reality that what God calls us to is to have our eyes refocused on him. That's, and so Christians have celebrated on Sundays to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And, and it's a day that we set apart in order to be rejuvenated and refocused and have our spirits and souls renewed. He goes on then to, to laws that govern our relationships with each other. He says, honor your father and your mother. Don't... And, and then some, some, you know, some ones that we, we probably would buy into morally. Don't kill each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie and bear false witness against the neighbor. And don't covet your neighbor's stuff or his house or his wife or his livestock. Nothing. Anything that's your neighbor. Don't covet. Don't be a covetous person. And so in the ancient Near East, these Ten Commandments were revolutionary. They, because they open, with, love the, they open with the Lord your God, and they end with your neighbor. Now, there are similar echoes in the ancient Near East and other laws and governance systems, but what makes these unique, there's a Jewish commentator named Nahum Sarna, and he said, only in Israel are these injunctions presented as divine imperatives rather than the fruit of human wisdom. So he's saying this is, this is unique in human history up to this point that God would say this is what it looks like to live and that there's, there is a calling to what it looks like to live toward him in worship. Have no other gods. Don't make idols. Don't use my name in an empty way and set aside the Sabbath day. But also then that God himself would tell us how to treat each other. 
These laws, you shall not commit murder or adultery or steal or bear false witness or covet, all of those are extended into the New Testament and they're restated by Jesus and carried on by the apostles and they're also summed up by Jesus. But Jesus takes it a step farther where all, all of these are laws of external action. So don't steal, don't commit murder. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, don't kill someone, but I tell you, that if you hate someone, you've already committed murder. He says, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that if you've looked at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus takes things a step deeper from the external to our heart level, saying, saying yes, these things are true, but even more so, there's, there's a heart issue that gets revealed through our external actions, and sin takes root in our hearts first. And so the call of God's people to pursue and live in holiness has not changed. These moral imperatives have not changed, and it is still sin to violate these Ten Commandments and the other moral callings to us that we see in the Old Testament. And so we need to understand these aspects, the civil and ceremonial moral aspects of the law. Second, we need to recognize our love-hate relationship with law. We, we are all postured naturally in rebellion against God. Like any toddler or teenager to their parents. If you, haven't, if you don't have kids, um, then maybe you can at least remember back to your own life. Like, do you remember, those of you who are not teenagers now, do you remember what it was like being a teenager? Like, you literally lose cognitive function, executive function in the prefrontal cortex to be able to make good decisions in your teenage years, it goes away, and you, you're reshaping that aspect of your brain, and in the midst of it, like, do you remember that, like, doing things, not even know, knowing what's going on, but just starting massive blowout fights with your parents, and then fighting about the fact that you're fighting? Maybe you've forgotten. Um, I, I'm reminded of my own teenage years now because we have teenagers. And so we experience it with them, and I try to have grace in remembering, like, okay, give this time for this storm to pass, and I'll receive my child again. And, um, and so, but because we all act in that kind of posture of, and we've all suffered the consequences of our own posture against God and the consequences of our own sin in our lives, where there's mistakes we've made that we've felt the reality of, and we've, all of us have suffered the consequences of other people's rebellion and sin in their lives too. But we feel a push and pull when it comes to matters of the law. There are aspects of the idea of law that we love, right? We all like to know what the expectations are for us. Like at work, we want to know what's expected of us in our jobs. Because then you can fulfill your expectations and you can be sure that you've done what you're supposed to do. Um, and often we like that because we would like to know what the minimal is that we have to do. Like, do you remember this in school? That in school, the difference between um, professors or teachers that would have, that would assign, a, give you an assignment and say things like, write a paper and it has to be less than 10 pages. And you go, okay, what's it supposed to say? Versus when teachers would give you bullet-pointed lists of assignments, and then you just kind of walk through, and by the time you've completed their lists, the assignment's complete, and you know what you've done. And so there are aspects like that that we love, the idea of knowing clear expectations. We also love when other people have law held against them. We like it when, when we see people fall short of the standards we think they ought to be pursuing, and the wicked are punished. Like, have you ever had the, like almost like nirvana level experience of seeing somebody do something stupid on the roads and get immediately pulled over by a cop. Like the level of satisfaction and joy that can bring to your heart and seeing somebody receive the punishment you think you, they deserve. Like somebody runs a red light and you see the lights go on and you're like, yeah, we love that when we know that somebody deserves something and the law is held over them. Like, like we, and, and we love something certain and controllable, and so this is why so often when we make mistakes, when we know that we mess up and we violate the things that even we think should be held up, that why we turn so quickly back to a law. And so this is, I mean, it's classic. So 
You go and drink too much, and you make the next morning you say, I am never touching alcohol again. These are the standards I'm putting into my life because my head is going to explode. You, you fall into you know, sexual sin, and then immediately you, you go, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. The consequences are going to be there. You get fearful about what the consequences might be, and you say, ah, oh, I need to put in these rules now in my life and boundaries. And so we move, we move immediately to law when we violate our own clear expectations because it's something that feels safe and controllable for us. So there are aspects of the law that we love, and we hate it, too. We hate, I hate being told what to do. Every one of us has a, an urge within us when somebody tells us to do something as a flat command with no, like if somebody just says, go and do this, and doesn't give any reasoning behind it, my first response is, why? Like, you going to make me? What, you know, what, what if I don't? We just, it, it, we have something in us that just says no and wants to rebel against it. We, we hate being told that there are restrictions on us. This is why most of us, when we read the Bibles, we want to ask the question of like, how far can I go in doing this thing that I really enjoy or is God going to keep me from it? Rather than asking, what does it look like to live in the freedom and holiness that God's called me to? And so for some of you that aren't Christians, I know that often what is most objectionable about, objectionable about Christianity is not whether or not God exists in the cognitive realities of whether or not Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, that for many of you, what you resist against is the idea of having someone else call you to something else in your life, and there's something in your life that you just don't want to give up, and you know if you turn to Jesus, you're going to have to. So we hate that aspect of law. We hate facing consequences. When, when we mess up, we want, to be, you know, we want to know that we have a second chance, and third, and sixth, and 18th chance. And the idea of law being held over us is terrifying. And so, so we have this push and pull inside of us that we're all torn, that, that we're torn about what shapes our lives. And there's aspects that we want to lean into the law, and we want to look and say, you know, let me make sure I'm meeting the bare minimum of what God calls me to in Scripture, and I want to know the law of God. And then there's aspects of us that are like, I hate that he has that restriction on me, and so we push against it. And each one of us lives... as. And in, in most of us then live in light of the internal realities that we, of how we have shaped an understanding of God's law rather than allowing ourselves to be shaped by consistently turning to his word. And so we need to recognize that uh, when it comes to the law, we need to understand how the Old Testament law works. We also need to understand and recognize our own relationship to the idea of law. And so in light of that, in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, then how do we understand what the law accomplished? That's what we're going to turn to next. Three things that the law accomplished for us. First, the law exposes our sin. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 as he's talking about, you know, he's answering the, uh, an issue that the Roman Christians, the Christians in Rome at the time in the first century were facing where people were turning to Jesus and embracing the grace of God that's been given to us in Jesus and then saying, now I'm free, I don't have to worry about anything. And they were using it as freedom to pursue things that are clearly outside of God's design for us. They're saying, I'm free, and I'm going to live how I want because I know that I've got my fire insurance and my get-out-of-hell-free card in Christ. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We are not slaves to sin anymore because we're under grace. And now we're bound to Christ. And he then turns to the law in Romans 7 and 8 and talks about, does this, you know, what, is the, what role does the law play? And he says, what shall we say then? Is the, that the law is sin? By no means. He's saying the, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament covenant is not sin. Of course it's not because God is a holy and righteous God. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And so what Paul says there is important for us, that part of the function of the law for us now is it shows us our own sinful hearts, that we might not even know what was outside of God's moral calling on us if it were not for the law. And so it exposes us. It exposes our own sin. Again, Jesus applying those things, saying, saying it's not just external action, but it's issues of the heart. And we know this. We know this innately, internally, that we are not as we ought to be. 
Francis Schaeffer used a story, an idea, and said, that, said, imagine that everybody lived life with, he said a tape recorder, but that's a very old-fashioned thing now. So imagine that you lived your life with an audio recording device hung around your neck that only recorded the things that you said that were moral statements about how somebody ought to live their lives. If that was it, and we just took what is innately within us of how we think people ought to live, and then at the end of our lives, we were held up to the, to the standard that had come out of our own mouths, we still wouldn't meet it. Because every one of us turns against our own standards, let alone the standards of God. And so the law exposes our sin. The second thing the law accomplishes is that the law, even when put in place, anticipated something greater. It looked ahead. And so the prophets talked about this. Jeremiah, the prophet, said this. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Yahweh said this. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So even the prophets were saying, God was saying through the prophets, the days are coming where a new covenant is coming in place of this covenant with Moses. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them from the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, this marriage imagery isn't something we were just reading into the text. God says, I moved in as their husband, and they cheated on me over and over again. But there's a new covenant coming. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so even God knew. It wasn't like like Jesus was a backup plan, and he went, Well, the thing with Moses didn't work. Let's figure this out now. No, God purposed from eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, a promise to redeem sinful people. But God says here that even in, before Christ had come, that a new covenant was coming that was going to be greater than the covenant with Moses. Why? Because it wasn't just based on external law, but it would be a law written on the hearts of his people, that they would be filled by his spirit, that they would, that, that they would be forgiven, and that he would know their sin no more. And so there's something greater coming that, that God would do. And this is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9 and 10 when he says that this new covenant has come in Jesus Christ that he is the one, the, the ultimate sacrifice once and for all so that our sin is removed from us and that the law of God is written within us. And so the law, part of what it accomplished in redemptive history was that it anticipated something greater. The third thing the law accomplished was that the law was a guardian limiting sin. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. He says this, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the the coming faith would be revealed. He's looking back to the law of Moses. Paul was raised a Pharisee, and he was was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He he gives us his list in Philippians where he says, this is, and and in 2 Corinthians, he said, this is who I am. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to the law, I am blameless, circumcised on the eighth day he had clicked every box along the way that you have to check, and still his perspective on the law instituted on Sinai is before faith came, we were held captive by that law. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He's saying we're freed from that. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what Paul is saying there isn't that you lose who you are when you come to Jesus. It's that your ultimate identity comes to something greater, and we're all brought together in one family so that that family, the boundaries of the family are no longer determined by the things that divide us in this world. 
that we aren't divided by ethnicity and race in the family of God, we are united as brothers and sisters. That we are not divided by socioeconomics in the family of God, we are united as brothers and sisters with one father. That we are not divided by gender, we are united, men and women, in, in one, in Christ, brothers and sisters alongside each other, all heirs of, of, of the promise that has been given to us. And he goes on then to say, I mean that it, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. My children would probably say, yeah, <laughs> preach that. <laughs> Though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, Christ came, God took on flesh, born of a woman. Why? To redeem us. God redeemed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, but they were still under the bondage of the law. Christ came to redeem us from slavery to sin and the law and to free us for all time, to be adopted as children of the king. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God." So Paul is saying that the law was given to us as a guardian to limit and restrict our rebellion and sin until the fullness of time came and we were freed not just to restrict our sin, but freed to live in the abundance of grace. And that's what we're given in Christ. So this is what the law accomplishes. It exposes our sin, it anticipated something greater, and it was a guardian that limited our sin. And finally today, understanding what the law is and what it accomplishes we need to understand, we need to see that God's grace then frees us to love. This is the beauty of the new covenant. That God's grace frees us. But it doesn't just free us to our own self-discovery and self-indulgence and self-pursuit. No, 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 that's, that's what the law exposes within us. It frees us to something much greater. And so understanding what did Jesus accomplish and how does that connect to all of this? Well, in Romans chapter 7, I love this because Paul goes on this section in Romans 7 that, um, that he, he is really confusing to read. And so I'm not going to read it and put it on the screen. But it, basically what he goes on to say, he says, listen, what the law shows me is that I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. And I am a wretched man. I, where is the hope for me. I don't, I don't, you know, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I do it, but it's the sin within me that shows itself up. And so he talks about how torn he is and, and the experience that I believe every Christian, authentic Christian saved by Jesus experiences as we understand the war between the spirit of God within us calling us to holiness and our own flesh within us that continues to push us to indulge sin. The same whispers that Satan spoke in the garden that have been embedded within our souls saying, did God really say isn't he holding you back from something you'll enjoy and maybe you'll be like him yourself we still hear those whispers within us and so Paul talks about that saying that that when he wants to do right, evil is close at hand, and he delights in the law of God and his inner being, but then he sees his, his body engaged in another law and waging war against his mind, and so he's torn in an inner battle within him, and he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, what is it going to take for me to be freed Ultimately, knowing that Jesus has done the work, what is it going to take for me to finally be freed from my own propensity to rebellion and sin? Well, thanks be to God, through our Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, my flesh I serve the law of sin. But then he goes on to say this in Romans 8. After all this inner battle and back and forth, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You hear what he's saying? If you turn to Jesus Christ and find your hope in him for your righteousness before God and stop running the race of trying to earn by your morality God's favor and blessing. If you're willing to say, all of God's law shows me my inability. It shows me that there is nothing I can do to come to before God. There's nothing I can do to earn his love because on my own, I am a wreck. And if you're willing to turn to Christ, then there is nothing left held over you because Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came and lived the fullness of the human experience, fully God, fully man, and he came so that he would condemn sin and fulfill the law for us. And so there's this mind-boggling double transaction that happens in the cross of Jesus Christ that he paid the penalty for all of our sin and all of our rebellion and all of our inability to hold up to the standards God has given us in his good and righteous moral law. He took all of that on himself and paid it for us so that when he said it is finished, he meant the work has been done for all of eternity. And then he gives us his righteousness so that we stand not in our own condemnation, but in the righteousness of Christ himself. So now if you are in him, there is no condemnation for you because you have been freed by the spirit of God to live in the fullness of God's grace. This is the good news of the gospel. This is, this is what makes it so beautiful is that all of Scripture led up to the point where Christ came and accomplished the work and brought the new and better covenant that God's people had looked forward to for centuries. But as we read in Galatians, when the fullness of time came, God gave him for us. And so we have the privilege To live as the people of God, not under the shackles of the law, but in the freedom of God's grace. And so Jesus then, when he was asked, okay, what is the greatest commandment? In the Old Covenant law, you need to understand that there were 613 commandments that rabbis recognized within the Torah. 613 commandments given. The Decalogue in Exodus 20 starts off the giving of the law by summing it up in 10. Like, that's... That's pretty good editing, right? Like we have 10, and, and then there's obviously 603 that follow. I think my math is right. And, but Jesus then is asked by one of the scribes, who is a religious leader, came up to him and heard, others, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, that Jesus was answering well, he decided to test Jesus and said to Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus summed up all of the law and the prophets in two commandments. He said, God's grace frees us to love God with all we are, and God's grace frees us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, if we hear this as what God's grace frees us to, then we're free to actually pursue these things. But even this, so often, we are prone to hear what Jesus had to say and then to hold this as saying, okay, well, now I only have these two elements of law, so let me see if I can fulfill those. And still to turn to our own righteousness and our own moralism to earn God's favor, rather than hearing that what Jesus brought for us was not that we would earn God's favor, but be a reflection of his goodness and love given by his spirit as we are reshaped and reformed in the image and likeness of Christ. But even these we turn into law. Paul Miller reflected on this. He said, our flesh reverses the two great commandments. Instead of loving others, we love ourselves, which is pride. And instead of loving God, we seek other gods, which is idolatry. And pride and idolatry work hand in glove. 
Paul's alternative god or idol was obedience to the law. And that's what we read, that Paul tried to find his righteousness by being obedient to the law. The law was life for Paul, and that in turn provided him a path for Paul to exalt himself. Pre-Christian, he's talking about, that that led to pride. And so our false gods not only promise life, but make us look good. And so we can even take the good things that God calls us to and use those to reinforce our own idolatry. But God's grace frees us from that kind of posturing. If you really believe what, what I just told you is the good news of the gospel, that you can't do anything to earn your way, but that Christ has paid the cost and given you his righteousness, not because of any merit of yours, but because of his work, then what do you have to be proud about or arrogant about? If we believe that stuff, that should lead you to be the freest and most humble person on earth, saying, I've got nothing to offer here. As I've heard one pastor sum it up, I am a complete idiot, but my future is incredibly bright, and any of you can get in on this. Like, there's nothing about us that makes it so that Christ died for us, other than we're in his image and likeness, and he loves us. We didn't earn that, but we still take the calling of Jesus and turn it into law so that we can earn it, and, and we're not freed from that kind of, but if we're freed from that kind of posturing, then we're freed to actual love. Let me explain that. I mean, we're running short on time, but... Love, at its, by its very nature, is one of the most terrifying things in our lives because it is the thing that we need and long for most, and it's the thing that we have the most trouble extending to other people. We, we default to transactional relationships, and we give and receive love in measured doses. So we'll do something for somebody and think that we're loving them well, but it really it's so that we can get a response from them. And if they don't respond and reciprocate like we want them to, then the amount that we express that self-sacrificial love will lessen dramatically. David Benner, a counselor, said, Love is dangerous precisely because it invites surrender. Although we may try to give and receive love in measured doses, both our own deepest longings and the very nature of love bids abandon. But abandon brings us right up to the edge of an inner abyss. How terrifying it is to face my naked and needy self, the self that longs for love and knows it can do nothing to manipulate the universe into providing the only kind of love I really need. And the crux of the problem is that I cannot feel the love of God because I don't dare accept it unconditionally. To know that I am loved, I must accept the frightening helplessness and vulnerability that is my true state, and this is always terrifying. Do you hear what he's saying? We don't even know how to receive love. We don't know how to be loved. We find ourselves protecting ourselves from the people that love us most because our understanding of love is based more on law than on grace. And we get scared that when somebody's being too nice for us and doing too much for us, don't you ever, do you have that twinge within you that's like, what, what's going on here? Like, what are, you, what are you doing? Again, our moralism on Christmas. You know, you didn't think you were gonna get that sermon today, did you? <laughs> In October. <laughs> Like somebody, if somebody comes in on a Sunday and just hands you a Christmas gift, not like somebody in your CG or somebody that you know, but just somebody at Redemption Hill that's like, hey, I've seen you here. Please take this gift. What would you immediately say? Out externally, you might say, oh, thank you so much. And then you would immediately, in your head at least, I don't know, I don't have a filter, so I think I would say like, I mean, what's, what's, why? <laughs> like, thank you, but this is unexpected. Like fishing for an answer. Why? Because immediately you start to go, ah, shoot, I didn't get them a present. Well, of course not. You don't know their name. <laughs> but we, we feel this. We don't want to receive too much because we're scared that it's going to be, uh, because, because we're scared that we're going to be held to something if we do, that it pushes an obligation on us, and that fear will crush us and will wall off our hearts. And we struggle not, not just to receive it, but then to give real love because, because we're, if we're stuck on how love is reciprocated and the transaction of love, then we aren't actually extending love to others, but often what we're extending is a bargaining chip so that we know that we have some relationship with them. It's a deposit. And without a foundation of knowing you're loved, it's hard to break out of that cycle. We think that selflessness is the goal. Jesus never calls you to lose yourself. He gives you a foundation of who you are and calls you to live self-sacrificially, not selflessly. 
You're not called to lose your soul in loving others. You're called to know, be so confident in God's love for you and in his grace shown for you in Christ that you're able to lay yourself down for the good of others. But only a radical understanding of God's grace can free us to experience the thing that we need the most, to, under, to feel loved. And so here's the thing about grace and law. It's not about carrying both forward as if we're on some kind of cosmic scale of saying like, okay, I weigh God's grace and weigh the requirements of my morality and we see how those, you know, make sure that I'm living in measured doses of both of those things. No, no, no. Living by the law has been shown to be empty. We have an entire Bible that shows us the emptiness of pursuing our own morality by law. That, that shows us that it's soul-crushing and life-sucking pseudo-success that will either destroy us because we fall short or destroy us because we convince ourselves that we've succeeded, which will fill us with pride and blind us to our own condition. But God's given you everything in Christ. He's, he's given you a chance to be called a child rather than a slave. He's given you a chance to receive an inheritance that will last for all of eternity, to be forgiven when you fall short of his glory and holiness, to be really loved, and in that foundation of being really loved, to be freed to live your life self-sacrificially because you are loved, and respond to his grace by loving him with everything you are, your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, and then extend that love and reflect that love to the people around you as you love people as yourself. And how do we know that we're loved? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Unmerited, unearned, unnecessary, extravagant grace. It's God's hesed love, his never stopping, never giving up, unending, always and forever love. And he's shown that love to you. And so it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, not freedom to sin, because that's slavery, but let's not turn again to slavery and the law, but walk in the freedom of God's grace. Father, we are helpless on our own to understand your love and grace, let alone to try to receive it. And so we need you today. We need you to open our hearts to be able to actually receive your love for us and to trust it. And so I pray right now that you would do that work that only your spirit can do and open every one of our hearts to know the love that you've shown us, to believe in your grace and to trust in what you've done for us ultimately in Christ. We can't do it on our own, but we trust that you can do it for us, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.